but I don't really share authentic sort of moments or funny things. But I also think part of it is probably I'm somewhat self-conscious. Reed, this is arguably the most special interview of my life. For anyone watching, Reed is my best friend in the entire <laughs> world and has been with me since the first day of launching seriously. The Conversationalist. It was the first night we met and oh became God. instantaneous best Sophie, friends. So. I love you. You are seriously my best friend. And I am so, so thrilled to have seen from day one of The Conversationalist, you've had such drive and it's manifested in POVs at a talk show. So the fact that I get to be your guest today and you can turn the tables and ask me some questions, it's just really cool to see how far The Conversationalist has come and how far it will continue to go. So thanks for having me on. It means the world that you're here. <laughs> so Reed, every episode we start off at the top with somewhat of a deep question. So my question for you is, do you think it's possible for human beings to ever be fully unbiased? I don't believe that. I don't believe there is perfection in anything. And you know, we, as journalists, which is what I do, want to be as objective as possible, but you can't be objective about everything. You have to pick and choose. And when you have ties or connections to certain kinds of topics, you really have to be able to know yourself and do some introspection and realize that you may feel a certain way about something. Let's say I was reporting on you or one of my friends. It would be very hard for me to view you in anything other than the incredible person you are through that lens. And that's not at all because it's disingenuous. It's because I have bias, right? And, and it's impossible to untether yourself from everything. Everyone has some form of attachment, right? And whatever you're attached to makes you vulnerable to bias. In my job, I have to strive to be as objective and neutral as I possibly can. So I focus on reporting on those things where I believe that is possible. And if I believe it isn't possible, I have to be honest and recognize my biases and say, gotta sit this one out. I know for you, you right. are so passionate about mental health. What do you do when you're covering an issue that you care about so deeply? And how do you toe the line between inserting hmm. your own bias versus staying unbiased? I think there's a difference between care and objectivity. You can care deeply about a topic and explore it through an objective point of view. Your, your POV can be unbiased and objective. You care deeply about social issues that affect this generation, but you're moderating an unbiased forum where you're giving all sides, of, not even both sides, all sides of the issue, all sides of a continuum, the opportunity to have roughly equal airtime and share what they believe. My job is very much similar. I'm here to be a conduit for people, that I'm transmitting information that we've verified, that we've synthesized really, really smartly, that we packaged into the most emotive story that we can. It's information that I feel uniquely poised to report on because I care deeply about it. I'm passionate about it. I'm willing to make the 1 or 2 a.m. phone call to a source because that's when they can speak to me and I need that information and I'm willing to stay up late and lose sleep and drive myself crazy because I know there's a greater mission there, which is to tell that story, but I can tell it objectively. And the way that I really force myself to do that is when I start to fear that I am feeling objective or lacking objectivity, I just ask really tough questions and I really put people to the test. There's a lot that's happened in your life before you even got to where you are now mm. as a reporter. And I think so much of how you were portrayed on screen in a weird way led you to where you are yeah. now, right? Nevelocity.com. He was a writer. You were, you were a writer, a journalist Absolutely. before right. your time. So take us back, Reed. Do you feel connected to that character still mm. in ways today? I do, I do, I do. You know, as you know, and as people know, I played Neville and I can now say, as of this year that I have played this character 
for 15 years, which is like mind blowing because I'm 27 now and I started that role more than half my life ago when I was 12 years old. And, uh, you know, unlike a series of movies where, you know, you play Harry Potter or something for, you know, seven films, I had played Neville uh, through the original series of iCarly and I was on the revival of the show. The role has come back with this gap in between where I sort of pivoted careers and ended up pursuing what I would say is really my vocation, kind of why I'm here is to be doing what I'm doing as a journalist. But to go back and play that role after all that time was was so incredibly gratifying. Um, yeah, Neville is part of me. I think he has lived on in my mind in some ways. As you say, he did have Nevelocity.com, which back then, you know, blogs were all the rage. It was a blog with, I remember he was very proud of his 5 million page views, which nowadays is probably not that much for some blogs, um, <laughs> but back then was like astronomical. But it is interesting that there's been this sort of symmetry in my life between playing a character who was like a young writer and now, you know, I'm a young writer. Do you look back on that time on the show fondly? And yeah. Were there any challenges being in the public eye at such an early age? Well, both. Uh, yes, to both of those questions. I absolutely look back on that chapter of my life with great affection and fondness. And I think about, you know, how lucky I was, what really a blessing it was at that point in my life to have had an opportunity to be a part of the most popular kid series ever. I mean, it was really, I mean, we could not have predicted that. When do you remember for the first time struggling with your own mental health? Was it when you were on the show? Mm. Or do you think it was when you left? No, it's even before actually. I've always dealt with anxiety issues, like, like a lot of anxiety issues, like I think many people do. And I went to a really, you know, arduous uh, preparatory school in South Florida where I grew up. And I think that probably exacerbated it, you know, so I've always had that. And over the years, you know, research shows and, and, and you know, clinical studies have shown that people develop like coping mechanisms for that. And, and, and it sort of disguises itself or goes beneath the surface. I think I've managed to address a lot of that anxiety. And I think I'm just getting to the point in my sort of adulthood where I can look at a situation and say, you know, is this really worth losing sleep over? Is this really worth eating me up? But I care about what I do. I care about my job. You know, I get a lot of anxiety from wanting to be, I'm very competitive. Uh, so look, being in the public eye in any capacity, whether you're a journalist with a byline and you're publishing for millions and millions of people as we do at Insider, or you're an actor on a television sitcom, you know, that can lead to sense of competition that can provoke anxiety. You know, look, being that exposed at that age can take a toll on you and you're always on, and you start to conflate the personality that you are when you're on, whether that's on the show or you know, in meetings, you could be meeting an agent. And I think where it cost me in the end was just in friendships with people my age, because mm -hmm. I had the very dear castmates of iCarly that I've talked to now and that I really love, um, but I didn't really have a lot of friends at home in Florida. In California where I was living, I didn't have many friends my age. So it wasn't until I got to college that I got to rectify that. I'm sure getting off the show gave you a chance to try new things, make new friends. Yeah. But I know you mentioned that you are a hyper-competitive person. Enormously. How does that manifest? Was it particularly with your castmates on the show? And no, you, we never had that amongst us. I've been very fortunate to work in two organizations where we never had intra-organizational competition which is just to say, I've never felt directly in competition with my colleagues. I never felt that on iCarly, and I do not feel it at Insider. I've had it in other organizations where you absolutely feel that the people to the left of you and the right of you, you're locked in competition with. And look, mm -hmm. I wanna win. I'm a competitive person. 
I want to win. And, and I really couch my performance around, was I the first one to break this story? Or was my performance on the show well-received? You know, these things matter to me. Uh, and, and, and some people do better when it doesn't matter to them and they're able to untether themselves. Uh, but I, I think that I have been very competitive with those outside. You know, I didn't really have direct competition on iCarly because I wasn't writing the show. It's different in journalism. I have a team around me and I can fall back on them. I have editors, I have colleagues, but it's really me who's going toe to toe with the other reporters on my beat on the topic I cover. Yeah. And I wanna, and I, I don't wanna win every, pretty much every time. Yeah, I get that. I feel you. I'm, I'm a perfectionist to a T and I think a part of me always wants to be striving for the best of the best. Right. But I'm sure that put a lot of pressure on you. I mean, coming from being a star on television for one of the most historically acclaimed children sitcoms mm. to now going on to NYU and then to Columbia mm -hmm. Journalism School and now being one of the top reporters on Wall Street. Did you ever feel a pressure to perform even to another degree? What do you think? Am I, well, am I competitive? As someone who knows you so <laughs> Incredibly well, well, family essentially. I think you're someone who never internalizes their own achievements or success. That's very much true. And yeah. so every time you accomplish the next big thing, whether it's a feature in People Magazine, whether it's being back on the reboot of iCarly, it makes me sad sometimes because I, I want right. you to see all of the amazing things you're accomplishing. But do you feel like there's this unquenchable desire to achieve the next thing within you that will mm. never be <laughs> satisfied? So there's this, there's this old thing in journalism where people say you're only as good as your next story, which is such an unhealthy way to live because I think of stories that we write require a lot of elbow grease. I mean, it would be one thing to just fire off 500 words that, you know, something happened somewhere or the mayor said this, and that's fine. I mean, there's a great value in that in the economy of news, kind of keeping track of breaking news. And I am breaking news, but when I'm breaking news, it's usually revelatory scoops that maybe people don't want out there, you know, that I've gotten through my own sourcing or my own hard work. You know, that could be two, three months in the making and dozens of conversations and dozens of hours of work and, you know, staring at the ceiling at one in the morning and saying like, what's the lead? What's the headline? No, we have to reframe this. So every one of these stories I liken to a painter painting or an episode of this show. You invest, any artist invests so much in their craft and journalism done in its highest form really is art meant to educate, meant to inform, meant to unearth. So when I look at each of these stories in sequential order, they're pieces of art I created, but there's this weird thing that happens with me where once it's like several months out, I feel like it's not mine anymore. Like I now have to create a new piece of art that is mine, like a shiny new car, a new piece of art. There is a sense of loss that sometimes I wish I was a little bit better about, you know, looking at something from two, three, five years ago and saying, hey, I did that. But I, I can't rest on my laurels and I don't think anyone can or should. It loses its luster for me because I get focused on chasing the next big conquest, the next big prize. And part of that is the speed of my industry. There's daily publication or weekly publication or people are publishing every quarter, but there's a regular cadence of this coming out. So if you start to slip, you get lost from that current. And I wanna be in the heart of the current and stay current. And the way to do that is to continue to push myself. And I think that's why I'm just a competitive individual. As someone who has observed you over the past couple of years, you are one of the most open, loving and giving people I know. But I have to be honest, when I see you 
put out yourself to the world, I don't see so much of you. Right. If you go to your Instagram account, it's these beautiful landscapes and the places you visited, <laughs> but not a lot of who you are. Do you feel like the people in your own life or even people on the internet know the real you? So I don't think people online do. I think you do. I, so I used to do this thing, and I guess I would invite people to go back and find this out for themselves, that I felt the need when I got off of iCarly and I went on to, uh, you know, just live my life, that I needed to, I had something to like prove, you know, on social media. And I would do these like long, you know, winding, bloviating captions and like I would, you know, really curate my feed. Like that's where I'm probably putting in my obsessiveness um, or my obsession with wanting to have it be so perfect. I have moved away from that because I think what happened was a couple of years ago, I looked back at a lot of these Instagram posts and I thought, you know, why do I sound so desperate? Like, why do I sound so desperate to show this restaurant or show this palace or whatever? It's different for people that their life is their business. I've developed this weird anxiety around it. Like almost if I share something on my feed or share something on my, my story, like I, I'm, I'm like letting my, you know, vulnerability down. And, and what's so, wrong with that? In what I do as a journalist, I see now other journalists who are very concerned about all this doxing going on or readers coming out of the woodworks and having too much access to what, where you are, what you're doing. And I've developed this like mistrust in the system that if I share, I'm at dinner with a friend, there, there's no harm in that, but it's like a slippery slope. Like the more I share, the more exposed I am, the more vulnerable I become in my line of work. If I wasn't doing what I'm doing, I probably would share more, which partly is for security, but partly might be a fabrication of my own paranoia. Like it probably doesn't have to go to the extent that I do where I've just gone silent, but I don't really share authentic sort of moments or funny things. But I also think part of it is probably I'm somewhat self-conscious that like if I post a funny thing in a taxi or a funny meme, like, is it going to be that funny? Are people going to like judge me for it? You know, so it just seems easier to not be bothered with all that. It's either become too exhausting to deal with, to like go through the agita process of like, am I going to post this and it's going to look silly? Or am I going to post this and regret what I said? Or am I going to post this that I really like it? In some regard, it's easier to not be bothered with that. In other regard, it allows me to not have to deal with the anxieties I have about it. I know I can relate to what you're sharing. I'm, I'm sure so many people can too. The fear of failure, the fear of being judged. Yeah. These are all things that we grapple with. And I appreciate that you were honest and opened up about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I want people to know if they're feeling these things, that there's people feeling these things. What would you say to your younger self? Knowing what you know now, what would you want you know, Neville to know? What would you want younger Reed to know as you were going through those formative years? I think what I would say is to care less about what I said to people because I used to care so much about everything I said to everyone and I would replay it. I'm caring less about that now or I'm trying to where I'm just saying, ah, you know, if they're going to be harping on something I said I didn't like, then, you know, they obviously don't have enough to do themselves. You know, I've tried to to let that go a little bit, but there's it's probably emblematic of something deeper, and I don't know that it's that it's don't care what people think because I don't think I'm there yet because I've just finished telling you I'm so concerned about sometimes you know doing these posts like if I really didn't care what anyone would think I would just do it for myself and I would find that fun not worrying about something I said or something I did is about having more confidence in myself. And I've really only in the last couple of years hit a place where I feel more confidence in myself. And I think that comes down to most of my life has been lived for 20 years now in a professional way. I started acting when I was eight. When you're not a series regular on the heart of your own series, I mean, you have that here, um, but you're sort of always like 
jockeying for airtime, you know, and, and, and hoping to get out there and trying to get that series regular job. Everybody wants that. I now feel I have become a series regular in my own life. And I actually think that has to do with having a consistent platform to publish and to share. What I have at my organization is so tremendous because it's really a platform of impact and consequence where I can do my very best work and then have a platform to blast it out in the world and I know people will see it and I know that it will resonate with them. And that has given me this sense that I've become a series regular in my own life. Uh, but that has given me a jolt of confidence that perhaps I didn't always have. Well, I'm proud that you have become a series regular in your own life. Everybody should be. Everybody That's what I hope should. for everybody, that everybody feels like a series regular in their own life. Absolutely. So, Reed, let's bring in some other POVs. Okay. Let's bring it to the Gen Z community. We're going to send you some texts. Keep an eye on your phone. Sending me some texts. And you're going to read them uh -oh. out loud. Should I check them out? Yeah. Journalism is dead. The entire industry is just a political ploy to promote a partisan agenda. There are no sources we can trust. Disagree. Ooh, tell me more. I think it's wrong. I think journalism is more alive than it's ever been. I think there's more good work happening. I think, unfortunately, because we have so much voice and clout, we also bring out detractors who question us. And look, it's okay to be questioned. We're questioning everybody so we can take the heat. But I think there are so many sources you can trust. I talk to them every single day. But I can tell you that I believe with every fiber of my being that journalism is alive and more fervent than ever and that it plays more crucial a role than we could ever appreciate. And I'll give you one example. When COVID began, we were not getting a clear answer about how it would affect us. Thank your local news agency for telling you to wear a mask or to avoid going here or there if you didn't get COVID. Because without that, it would have been far worse pandemonium than we realized. They really helped us pull through. Do you think the truth is subjective nowadays? No. Do you think there's a blurred line now between opinion and fact? I think there is a lack of equipment on the part of ordinary people to distinguish between opinion and fact. I think the issue is people don't know how to tell the difference. I don't think blue and gray are similar colors just because someone may see them that way. Mm. But I think the difference is that person needs to be putting on a thicker pair of glasses. For anyone out there who is struggling to determine what is real and what is not. I mean, we live in this age of misinformation. What would you say to that person to help them navigate knowing what is true and what is not? I think there's two things you can do. You could actually study, you know, formal logic. You could study how journalism is produced. You know, one of the great mysteries for people is understanding what is a source familiar with the matter. And everybody has, you know, lingo or language for their job. I mean, you have language, people on sets. I never understood what like strike the set means. The difference is journalism reaches pretty much everybody because everyone has an opinion about news or interacts with the news. You have to interact with our raw material because we're giving you a story. People also have to be willing to go out and look at those things and understand how is an article made? How does this happen? That's what I tried to teach my introduction to journalism students. And what they told me by the end of the semester was, we can't look at a piece of journalism the same way. We see it completely differently. We're breaking it down. We're analyzing it. We're asking critical questions. More people need that. But until that ability is there, I would say it's very simple. Consult a multiplicity of outlets. Don't look at one news organization and assume it's gospel. Be open to more information and think critically and then have the tools to analyze for yourself the quality of the information. The great travesty in our country is that people are so reliant on everyone else for their own information. I think that was such a good practical piece of advice. Consult multiple sources and try to go out and seek out that info for yourself. Letting kids become actors is the worst thing a parent can do. We need to watch out for people like Dan Schneider. No, Dan is, and this is an opportunity for me to say this on the record, Dan is a peerless character. He is a very good friend to me to this day. 
I talk to him regularly. I think he's a phenomenal individual. Anything that you might have seen or heard, I categorically disagree with, deny. I, I really know Dan. It's not that I believe, I know Dan, and I know that he is a phenomenal individual and he will always be a friend to me. And uh, I disagree with that statement. I don't think letting your kids be an actor is the worst thing you can do. You have to be watchful for the signs that something could go wrong. I was, my parents supported me as a young kid that wanted to act because that's what I loved. But I got out scot-free because I didn't go to those like dangerous, you know, drug infested parties and all this. So for me, the toll was around making friends, but compared to what a lot of people go through, I think that that's not that bad. Do you think you would let your future kids be Why an actor? Why not? Absolutely. If they wanted to be an actor, I don't think it would be healthy to deny them what they want. I think if that's what people want, you have to give them that airspace, airtime. Mental health isn't a real problem. No, totally disagree. It is absolutely a real problem. Why do you think that person doesn't think mental health is a real problem? Maybe they've never experienced it. And I hope for their sake that they haven't, you know, some sort of challenges with mental health. If you don't know it yourself, I mean, I don't know how anyone couldn't suffer at all mentally or with mental health because mental health is like, it's like saying you're gonna get through the next hundred years of your life and never get sick. Like mental health is not a severe diagnosed disorder. It could be, I deal with stress. I, I don't get enough sleep because I'm worried about something. I'm fighting with my partner or my loved one and it's taking a, that affects mental health. I think this person is not recognizing authentically how serious those issues are and perhaps grew up in an environment where they were told, no, we're not talking about our feelings. That's, that's not important. You know, focus on work. That's their focus on result. I so vehemently disagree with that view and I want everybody talking about mental health and recognizing that it should be normalized and we should be removing the stigma and that it is a real problem. There's nothing wrong with having a mental health illness, having a mental health disorder or having struggles in your life. What's wrong is not talking about it. So maybe we shouldn't call it a problem. Mental health is a real phenomenon that we can all do a better job of helping to solve. Absolutely, because that's how we actually understand people's real experiences that would hopefully connect that person to a real person who has that struggle. Right. Because I think till it happens to you or till you know someone it happens to, it's hard to sometimes empathize or understand. We need an iCarly spinoff that's all about Neville. It's about time we rue the day. <laughs> Should there be a spinoff? Why not? I mean, I guess, why not? Yeah, sure, sure, I would do it. Yes, I would do it. What do you think some of those real struggles today Neville would go through and what do you think he would be planning? <laughs> I would like to see Neville in his first job where he like really wants to run the place and is like the entry level, you know, totally junior person who has to struggle with being like, you know, like the intern that's told to like sit on the corner of the room, and, you know, nobody and just take notes. And like, I'd like to see Neville go through the get coffee for people. Um, I'd love to see Neville. I mean, Neville's married now, you know, uh, on the revival um, with uh, with Prunella. But I would actually like to see Neville go through uh, some dating experiences and understand uh, what he's like on. I mean, like a first date with Neville. Ugh. You know, we did this fun series of videos where Neville started cooking. He actually had very good taste. He had good appetizers. Neville always had appetizers and afternoon snacks. You know that three o'clock hump where you're just like starving? Yeah. Some Neville knows. Neville has some solutions. Tapenade, it could be he was doing this like egg salad and cucumber thing. Like Neville has 
a great sense of if it's like 3 p.m. and your like aunt brings out a tray of like appetizers, like Neville would know how to curate that menu, like to help you power through the last two hours of hunger Amazing. in the workday. So I, I might like to see him take that up a little bit. Do you ever get annoyed when someone comes up to you and asks you to say rue the day? So many people remember that line. How cool is that? You know, you come into the world once and you want to like leave impact. I guess my whole life has been lived around wanting to have impact. And, you know, to have impact through that show that so many people, I've been in Hong Kong and met people watching the show all over the world that I hear from or that I've met, you know, just out, know what we were doing is like, Amazing, you know, it's amazing. It's such a rare, incredible thing. And you know what, I've met some really people, like people you would not expect who are senior people in industry or whatever it may be, who like watch a show with their kids. And it's hilarious to me when they bring it up. I think it's a lot of fun and it becomes like a conversational, it's, it's, it's a starter for conversationalists. I love it, I love it. Read, drop a hot take. Wait, I'm such a nerd. What is a hot take? It's like an opinion. It's a controversial <laughs> opinion. A con well, I was going to say the conversationalist is really awesome, but I guess that's is not that controversial. You know, the people in Florida are so like, they're not aware of what's going on. They're they're living in their own reality. They're off in their own land and, and, and totally disconnected. And the hot take is if you say Florida is so awful, I think you're wrong. And I will defend it nine times out of 10. I actually am on Florida's side. I don't agree with everything that goes on there, but it definitely gets a bad rap. And I say, come check it out for yourself. And I will personally show people the places to go that will change their minds. That was a pretty hot take. Reed, having you on POVs today was so fulfilling for me. I, I have the best time. Getting to hear you talk about what really matters to you. It's amazing seeing you light up about journalism, but also <laughs> how you're willing to be vulnerable about some of the things that you're still struggling with, because I think we all are. So my last question for you today is, if you could share one message with all of Gen Z, what would it be? Don't be afraid. I don't want people to be afraid. I want people to push themselves beyond what they're capable of. I want them to push the world beyond what they think the world is capable of. And don't be afraid, because fear breeds just all kinds of darkness, and nobody should have inhibitions or fears. And uh, I want everyone in Gen Z to help support each other by creating a future where there shouldn't have to be fear. You shouldn't be afraid of being bullied. You shouldn't be afraid of being fearful about being who you are, or bullied about why or who you are, or you know, afraid of speaking out about something. Everyone's so afraid. We're afraid of being called out. We're afraid of being questioned. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing. So what I would say to Gen Z is please undo the fear that has existed on this planet for millennia and really take back a culture which is predicated on so much more love than fear. And, and I hope that they will do that. And I hope that your platform is going to help them in a very big way to accelerate uh, getting to that end result. I have a lot of faith in this generation and I, I only hope that we can build that future. So Reed, thank you for everything. This was the best. For being the leader you are. <laughs> and I'll be counting down till that Neville spin. <laughs> I can't wait. Thank you for the great questions. I had a great time. Oh, I love you. I love everything you asked. Oh, do you feel like you talked about everything you wanted to talk about? Everything. And things I didn't think about that I wanted to talk about. Like, you really gave me a chance to just talk about things. You've been here since the beginning, so it just means a lot that... <laughs> Isn't it cool here. that now we're, like, sitting in front of... Look at those POVs. Thank you. Before you Mom. go, can we take a selfie? We must take a selfie. Okay.